Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten podcast and welcoming back to the show a firm favorite, Preston Pish, who took the time out of his day very early in the morning to come on the show and discuss lending and what he has uncovered from his extensive research into this next phase of financialization of Bitcoin. Great discussion. I hope you get a lot out of this. Thank you, Preston, for all of your work and for taking the time to come back on the show. Before we get into the interview, please, guys, uh, take a moment as I shout out big thanks to the support that I've received for the show from coinfloor.co.uk, swanbitcoin.com, and relay.ch. That's R-E-L-A-I.ch. If you go to any one of those URLs and use forward slash bitten, you will be taken um, straight to a service where you're going to get uh, a kickback. In the case of Swan, you'll get $10. In the case of uh, Relay and CoinFloor, you'll save on commissions. These are Bitcoin only companies. They are very much focused on helping you get into Bitcoin in the best way and teach you the best practices perfect place for noobs to go and check out and the perfect place for people that have been here for a little bit longer just looking to increase their stack in a um, sensible manner so those are the three companies that have sponsored the show really appreciate you guys and a big shill for uh, bitcoiner jobs if you are looking to escape your fiat career and enter a job in the space go and check them out on twitter that's an unofficial shill i just love what they're doing and of course, play Shamari if you want to teach your kids and your family and your friends about Bitcoin. That's the place. Enjoy the interview. Okay, Preston, we're good. We are recording. Great to see you again. Hey, great seeing you too. So, mate, what's um, as we were just uh, talking about, I, I've been watching you. I've been following you very closely, looking into the lending market and listening to your recent podcasts and watching your tweet threads. This is clearly something front and center of your mind and it's been great to listen to some of the podcasts that you've done and read your tweets and as usual uh, I think you're ahead of the game and what I'm interested in is how these conversations and interactions with these people what's been ticking over in your mind in the background uh, because you're you're always kind of trying to piece these puzzles together. This is uh, why we love listening to you. And you, you have a history of definitely calling things before they start to happen. So I'd really like to dive into some of that. But what I think would be also very helpful for some of the listeners, if I put myself in, um, in many of the like Taco Pleb shoes, um, many of us here are probably familiar with, with financing. Um, People have probably taken out loans to buy a house or buy a car or you know whatever it is to get by and um, for big events. Many of us might not have ever experienced leveraging, being in the position to leverage. So, what um, what are your thoughts around 
trying to explain to people uh, the difference between kind of those two those two terms. So I would start off from a really big picture kind of uh, just just so people can kind of understand my thought process of why I'm kind of going down this this path and trying to really understand it. So since the 19 early 1980s, really 1981 until now, interest rates have done nothing but go down. Um, most people would use the 10 year treasury in order to kind of, uh, you know, represent that idea. So if you go back into 1981, your, your 10 year treasury was at 16%. And today it's at 1.47%. And it was even lower than that. If you'd go back uh, through COVID, um, it was down at like 50 basis points. So, and if you would look at a chart over this period of time, the interest rates have just kept going down. So I'm of the opinion that anything, these cycles move, um, some of them move in very long periods of time, and some of them move in, in every six months or maybe even a shorter duration. But I, I try to start with what is that trend and what is going to break that trend. And um, this trend in interest rates, so as those yields are going lower and lower, what's really happening is the price of the underlying bond is going higher and higher. So these bonds are getting bid at higher and higher prices, which is pushing the yields down to next to nothing. Um, when you get into like a 30-year bond, the prices are even going higher to push those yields lower and lower uh, because there's, there's more time that's, that's being bid or more coupons that will be paid into the future that have to be accounted for based on those changes in interest rates. So... When you think about these interest rates and you think about what they represent, which is the cost of capital is being built and constructed out of these interest rates. And what that, when, when we say cost of capital, just your cost to borrow, your cost to do business, if you're going to borrow money overnight or you're going to borrow money for a few months or you're going to borrow for a few years, um, those rates are being uh, baselined by those government interest rates. And then the corporate rates are built on top of that with a risk premium and things like that. Okay. So when I'm looking at how this has matured over the last 40 years, which is it's been manipulated, the prices have been bid, the yields have continually come down. And now they're at a point where they don't make any sense. And because they've been so over manipulated because the prices have been bid so high. Um, I keep asking myself, when, how does it blow up and where does it blow up to? Because anything that gets compressed down to zero percent and now even negative percent, when it unwinds itself, it's going to start going back up. But it has like, what's the mechanism for it going back up? Um, why would people be willing to pay a higher cost of capital if the government's still intervening and manipulating the rates and everything? You know, as I ask myself this question and I look around and I try to understand what that is, everything leads me back to Bitcoin and it leads me to the lending and borrowing that's taking place in Bitcoin. Uh, so somebody that hears that is going to say, well, what's the time frame on that? And the answer is I have no idea. I really have no idea how long that's, that's going to take for the market to come to some type of realization like that. But as I look at those rates today, right now, you can go into a lending borrowing in this crypto economy, which is being constructed right next door. I, I think of it like two cities, like you got the old New York City, like 
<laughs> over here, the old legacy banking system. And then you have this new crypto banking system that is literally being built, constructed side by side by the old legacy system. These two systems are incongruent with each other because system one is a system that's based and built on fractional reserve lending. The new system that's being constructed is being built with a fundamental principle of equ it's equity based. And more importantly, it's based on over collateralization of lending. Okay. Those two systems are completely incongruent of each other. Uh, and there's bridges that are being built between these two systems. And there's going to be people that are building bridges that are, that are accommodative to the old system of fractional reserve banking. And there's going to be bridges that are going to be built that are based on the over collateralization of an equity based currency or, or, uh, an equity based asset, <laughs> you know, if, if people want to call it that or a currency or whatever, I don't really care what you call it, but I do know that it has no counterparty risk and you better be careful with it. So right now, if you compare the, the market sizes of these two different universes or cities, um, the legacy one is just, uh, it's, it's almost not even comparable in size. You know, you're talking about something that's a trillion, slightly above a trillion in, in market size. The other one you're talking is, is probably 200 times bigger if you're not accounting for derivatives, which I would argue are, are net neutral in their position. So I'm, I'm not including them in what I would say the size of, of those are. So the legacy is two, let's just say 200 to 300 times bigger. As we look at this transition over to this new financial system that's being constructed, and you look at the interest rates that are already being produced over here for US dollars, you're looking at anywhere from a 10 to 16% return on just, I would describe it as near riskless um, borrowing on, on dollars. And then when you look at the legacy system, you're looking at a 10-year treasury at 1.5. And if you're, you're dealing with overnight money, you're, it's at 0%. So when, when I'm comparing and, and contrasting these interest rates, I'm saying, yo, this is not something uh, that is going to, or there's, there's, a, there's a vacuum that's pulling money into the new system because of this disparity. Um, the other thing that I would say is now you have people like Jack Dorsey and Square who just made an announcement this week that he's going to become an FDIC insured bank. And he's already in, he's, he's already got one foot in the door of this new economy that's being constructed next to the old economy. So what's to stop him from allowing people to make deposits straight out of their salary into his new FDIC insured bank, he then tokenizes the, the dollars that are, that are coming in the old legacy, slow clearing dollars. He tokenizes them into something like USDC or the Gemini dollar or whatever, and starts offering interest rates of call it six to 10% for deposits, because you can do that if you got something that immediately clears and you start sticking, sticking it into this borrowing lending market that exists over in this new economy that's being constructed. 
I really think by the end of the year that some of this stuff that, that I'm talking about right now is, is going to be a reality. And I just can't possibly imagine how people that are looking at these legacy rates are going to not have a mind blowing event where they say, what in the hell is happening? How is this guy offering, and we'll use low numbers, 5% interest rate. He can get much better than that. And especially go to peer to peer. Some of this stuff is 16% on the dollar. Um, how is this guy offering these rates and what in the world do we have to do to catch up? Um, and that event, when, when a, a large entity like Square could potentially offer this stuff and everything that I'm seeing that they're doing leads to them potentially offering something like this in the future. I don't know how you can keep the lid on any of this if some of that stuff starts to play out. I mean, how, how in the world can somebody on Wall Street who's sitting on a, on a fixed income desk, you know, trading these things and, and losing their mind because they've moved five basis points or 10 basis points? How are they going to be able to hold it together if some major bank that has just gobs of clients? I mean, you can't go into a small business today without a square thing sitting there on their desk taking, taking uh, sales, right? Offering higher interest rates, even if the interest rates were 1% or 2%, it would be the biggest vacuum sucking capital into their, into their enterprise that I've ever seen ever. Um, and so then the question becomes, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, this is a really long answer, but the question then becomes, what does that mean for the, for everything else? What does that mean for the valuations of everything else? If interest rates aren't these one and a half percent on the 10 year treasury, I've been totally duped into believing this is free and open markets, uh, cost of capital rates. And they're actually 5% or 10% or whatever they are. Well, the value of everything is recapitalized and it's recapitalized in a way that, that I don't think most people's minds can even comprehend. Um, so that's, that's why I'm very curious and very interested in understanding how this market fun, how, how this borrowing and lending in this new economy that we're constructing works. And the more that I dig into it and the more that I look at it requiring over collateralization, the more fascinated I become with it, especially because of the, the things that it does to Bitcoin. So like if you're locking up collateral, you're pulling coins off the market, which is, a, is an additional supply suffocation in addition to the supply suffocation that's automatically being supplied by the protocol. So all these things kind of intertwine together. I'll just stop there, but that's, that's why I'm kind of plowing into a lot of this and trying to really understand it. It's crazy, mate. It, it really is. And uh, I can't imagine, like, before we hit record, you said, I can't imagine what's going to happen to the bond market. And you've kind of just set it up there because what are people going to do if they're, if they're holding these bonds one year, three year, five year, 10 year, whatever. And they see this thing going on over here, which is offering, like you say, anywhere from five up to 15%. There's only one thing that's going to happen. So what does that mean for the wider bond market and well, the whole market? Because it's just underpinned by that market. So you already have uh, central bankers around the globe talking about this thing called yield curve control. 
And so I'm sure most people that are here that listen to this probably aren't intimately familiar with what yield curve control is or what it what it really means. And so let me just describe what yield curve control is. So in the past, they've just called it quantitative easing, where they're going to step in, they're going to print a bunch of money, they're going to then step into the bond market. And if Daniel, if you own a bond, I'll buy it from you. And I'm going to I'm, I'm effectively bidding the price higher by buying it from you and anybody else that has whatever uh, duration I'm going after. Typically, to date, they've really only gone after really short duration bonds. But there was through Operation Twist was the name of it. This was, oh my goodness, probably six or seven years ago. I, I don't remember. Um, where they went further out into the, into the curve and they were buying longer duration bonds. And then here through COVID, I mean, they were even doing, e they were buying ETFs of corporates and things like that to suppress the bond market. So they were, they were, they were printing, a, let's just say, uh, $5 trillion. They step into the market like they did with COVID. They step into the market, they buy all these bonds and claw them off the market, which bids the prices, which pushes the yields lower. That's what happens with QE. With, uh, with yield curve control, it's QE, but it's QE with a backstop on the yield. So remember, as the price goes higher, the yield goes lower. So what they're saying is, let's just take the 10-year treasury, for example. I could absolutely see them come out and say, we're going to do exercise yield curve control on the 10-year treasury at 1%. Okay. So today, as we're talking, the, the yield on the 10-year treasury is at 1.46%. So that means they're going to step into the market. They're going to buy a, just a tank load of bonds, tons to push the yields down 46 basis points, down to 1%. Okay. So they're bidding the prices. The yields come crashing down to 1%. And then if there's any more sellers that show up, they will continue to be buyers no matter what in order to keep the yield at 1%. So let's say half the country steps comes, comes and says, we're going to sell our our 10-year treasury, the Fed would say, all right, bring it on. We'll keep on buying them. And we're going to keep these, this yield pegged at 1%. Like we are a buyer no matter what, if enough sellers show up to try to push the yields higher than 1%. So it's QE unlimited is really what it is. Um, now they could then say, all right, we're going to now be a buyer to, to peg the yield at a half a percent, 50 basis points. And then they'll gobble up all these bonds by printing a bunch of money and buying them off the market until the yields get pushed down the 50 basis points. And then they'll continue to buy as much as needed as all these sellers show up. So think about what we were describing earlier with interest rates in this new economy. Let's just say they're five or 10% or somewhere in that range. This is going to create just such a massive sell-off in fixed income, if, if it's done at scale or the market senses that this is the direction that everything's moving is the, these much higher rates, they're going to sell the heck out of these legacy issues, these legacy bond issues. But the, the governments are going to be there to soak them all up okay, through printing and through yield curve control in order to keep the legacy system pegged at a certain rate. Now, why would they do this? And uh, that's the most common question you're going to get. Well, the, the reason why is because they cannot allow legacy rates to go up. Think about what this would mean for the, for the house prices of, you know, all the real estate in the world. People have now um, effectively uh, 
equated their net worth with the value of their house. That's the, that's the thing they own. They really don't have any savings for the most part. And I'm talking in very big, broad brush strokes and, and generalities here, but for most people, their, their net worth is the value of their house. So if, if interest rates go, I mean, just think about what happens to the, to the, to your, uh, mortgage when interest rates go down 1%. Now imagine if, if the government wasn't manipulating the interest rates and they were allowing it to go up 1%, what that would do to the value, your house value would go down. If you wanted to buy a house or step into a market, now you're paying a whole lot more for the same house. Like all of those things um, are dependent. And I'm just talking the real estate market. I'm not talking the capitalization of small businesses. I'm not talking the capitalization of, of, uh, a private equity or public equity. I'm not talking about like any of those things. And those are all impacted by a rising interest rate in the same way, in a negative way. Um, then we could talk about sovereign debt. So all this debt that fiscal appropriators continue to pile up, which is becoming accelerative at this point, can they, uh, can they borrow as much if interest rates are going up? Of course not. So the only solution that I see, because it's not just the U.S. that's doing this, it is every single country that is acting in this manner where they're, they're manipulating their interest rates. Um, the only way I see something like this getting resolved is if this third party or like this, this outside entity that no one is expecting comes in and naturally supplies reality for the cost of capital of everything. And that I'm obviously talking about Bitcoin and I'm obviously talking about this new uh, financial system that's now, I would argue, con constructed to a point where you're not going to shut it down because it's that big. Um, and it's been being it's been built or being built for a decade now and no one's really paid much attention to it. And now all of a sudden, I think people on Wall Street are looking over here and saying, hey, that city over there is getting really big. It's like as big as ours now. And it's it's scaring the bejesus out of a lot of people. Yeah, it truly is. And I don't know whether you heard the door, but um, Lauren has joined us. Oh, great. So uh, great. she's she's finished her lesson. Say hi to Preston. Hi. How you doing, Lauren? Good, you? Good. How was your lesson you were you were working on? Interesting. That's good. Did, any more context? Like what, what were you, uh, what was it? It was a space exploration. Oh, wow. Very cool. No, I like okay. it. Sorry? I, oh, that, that sounds really interesting. Oh, yeah, it is. So you're going to be a rocket scientist when you grow up, huh? If you keep talking to people like Preston and, <laughs> and Michael Saylor, you're probably on the right track. <laughs> <laughs> if you like math, it's a fun major. I don't really like math. I get angry at math <laughs> very quickly. <laughs> I'm like, okay, this number to this number makes this number. Then I check on my calculator and I'm like, what? But no, 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 no. It's just practice. Now, you didn't come very prepared with, for Preston today, so no. you probably don't have a question. But I would like to ask um, Preston if he would um, have a question for me. What would one have a question for you, or two, whether he'd be willing to share a story? from his book that I've been listening to and I'm about halfway through his book about being a uh, uh, at West Point. And, oh, um, okay. 
I'm at the beginning of the, well, I'm, yeah, like I said, I'm about halfway through and I've, I've listened to your Beast Barracks epi, um, escapades. And I, I, there, there was one point I was listening to it in the car the other day when I was driving my son to and from football and I was, I had tears down my eyes. I, I was absolutely <laughs> pissing myself. And I, I want to pull the story out of you. And I think Lauren will get a lot out of it as well. I think she'd find it quite funny. Um, but I want to ask you, Preston, does, what does room 304, what, what kind of uh, emotions does that stir in you? That, uh, is so that... you, you're talking about the, the one where I jump kick the, the guys, the upperclassmen's <laughs> door. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Can you tell Lauren some of the uh, the escapades that you were getting up to, and, and why on earth were you, you know, jump kicking through some people's door at like uh, some ungodly hour in the morning? My lord, I I forgot that that was even in that book. Ah. <laughs> uh, so on that particular story, if I, if I remember it right, maybe my memory isn't, isn't holding so great, but um, I was taking out the trash like really early in the morning. It was like, you know, 5 a.m. or maybe even earlier. I don't remember, but uh, I, we were on, uh, the, I, I believe I lived on the fourth floor and I only went up enough steps because it's early in the morning for like three floors. And I went to my room where my roommates were, you know, studying in the morning. Cause you, in order to prepare for the day, you got to get up really early. You got to memorize all this junk before the day starts. And so I knew they were in there and if we would, we would slam the doors early in the morning because the upperclassmen were still sleeping and it would annoy the hell out of them. So we're up and we're, banging around right and they wouldn't really necessarily know which door was slammed and so i went to the third floor instead of the fourth floor where i was at and i wanted to just scare my roommates by jump kicking the door open and these doors these doors are so thick and like just dense that when they open and they hit the wall i mean it is like it is uh, this massive boom and so Anyway, I went to the wrong floor. I went over the same note because it was it, it's like a prison cell kind of thing. You know, like you just count however, however many doors over you were at. And I thought I was at my room. And I mean, I jump kicked this door <laughs> wide open. It comes swinging and crashes against the wall. And these two, like the lights were off. And like these two dudes are in this room and like they come, they like, jump up out of their bed and i was like oh my god because i'm a freshman i've got to get the hell out of here and <laughs> i just i just ran just took off running and i get up to my room and luckily so i don't know if this is in the story or not luckily um there were two different so they break you into these things they, they call them companies so the companies are like 120 people uh, per company. And the school has like all these different companies. And I would equate them to like almost like fraternities. So you're in this fraternity with 120 uh, people. And so the floor beneath us was a different fraternity. So they didn't really know who I was because I was basically in a different uh, company. And um, 
man, I, I remember running and just getting back to my room and, and, and I told my roommates when I got back, I was like, Oh my God, you won't believe what just happened. They were, we were, we were just sitting there the whole morning, like, Oh my God, are they going to come up here and just destroy us? Like, I just can't even imagine what would have happened to me if, if they never found me. They never, uh, they never realized who it was. I think it was because it was so early. They didn't get a good look on me or whatever, but I, I survived that and, uh, it would have been brutal if I, if I would have been caught. So yes, it was, it was so funny. And I, I think it says in the book, I think it says in the book, didn't you leverage that story to, to heighten, um, didn't you start telling people you date on purpose? It wasn't a mistake or something. Oh, when I went up to my, well, yeah, I think I probably did spin the story to my roommates. Like, oh yeah, I was really tough or whatever. I, dude, what a, what a mess. And then this is just so like, this is, these are the things that you would do over the four years to just try to, uh, like the fun is different. Like, I, I think people that would look at that and be like, oh my God, that'd be the worst experience of your life. But I think most people that go there do want to be there. And so you just, your, your definition of fun or like your, the way you view it optically is just kind of different. You know, looking back at, <laughs> looking back at the experience now, there's no way I would ever want to go through that ever again. But while I was, <laughs> while I was going through it, you just kind of found ways to like really kind of. You know, here's a good example. Like I look at my kids going through COVID, they're young. They, they don't really even uh, know that it's really kind of this thing and they're still having fun just as if, you know, COVID wasn't even happening. They just kind of adapt and overcome. So one of the beauties of being young, I guess. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I get to go to my friend's house since it's just curfew, not lockdown. Mm -hmm. So I and I still I still think it's like the same life because all I do mm -hmm. is just like stay home, do my school, go out on walks, and meet my friends. That's what I knew. And no that's mask. what I did. Yeah, that's that's what I did all like all the time. Exactly. But not really, because like like last summer I think I was at school, so that was a bit different. Mm hmm. But now you do it all online and uh, yeah, it's just all the same. And this time I don't have to get up at seven. That's the big reason. Huge difference. <laughs> Huge difference. Although we're talking to Preston, it's half past five in the morning over there. And he's been up well before this. this yeah, like the one where he jumped to kick the door. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, do you want to say uh, uh, anything? Yeah, else? I have to go because okay. I have a class. You have a class. Yes. What's that one? It's creative with coding. Coding. All right, cool. You better say goodbye. Let's go. Bye. Have fun. Good seeing you. I Good seeing you too. See you soon. Yeah, mate, I'm really enjoying the book. And uh, for anyone listening, download it or, you know, grab a copy or whatever. It's, it's really fun. And I like the way, actually, because I was listening to it. And like you said, who the hell would want to be in that, in that situation? Like, it, it just sounds like really, well, We've all seen the military films and, you know, I'm sure they're very good um, uh, replications of what goes on. But what I like at the end of each chapter is you kind of break it down as to why it's set up that way and the lessons that they're trying to teach. And that's really cool. That, that's, that's like a, a nice like, uh, way for someone that's never been in that position. All right. Okay. I get it. And that's what, you know, builds leadership and that's what builds teams and that's what builds efficiency and efficacy uh so and and that has obviously carried over into your post 
career. Here you are at 5 a.m. in the morning doing podcasts because you're so committed and you're, you know, regimented. I'm sure you still make a very nice bed in the morning. Um, but whatever, what other life lessons has that carried over into, into your personal life? And when you're looking at markets and things, it, it, there's probably like a straight line you can draw back to a lot of these experiences that you've had. I would just tell you from a markets standpoint, um, the thing that, that you really kind of walk away from the West Point experience with is uh, don't ever tell, you, tell yourself something that, uh, I, I, or how would I phrase it? Be careful what you tell yourself because you might just realize it is probably the way that I would describe it. And so when I look at markets, you see people all the time that say, well, there's no way you can know that. Or there's, there's, uh, I don't, I don't try to do that because it's too difficult or I can't possibly, uh, determine what that would be. And, and maybe they're right. I don't, I don't know, but I don't approach any type of question that way. I approach, all right, so what do we think this is? All right, well, can this be determined? What type of probability would we associate with it? And you just kind of approach markets from the mindset of like, I can figure this out, um, even though it's extremely complex. Now, I might not figure it out quickly, or I might be wrong, but at least I'm making an attempt or trying to not talk myself out of understanding something before I even tried to explore what it is. Um, so I think that that's a really important thing that I kind of captured from that experience at a very young age is, uh, tell yourself whatever it is you want to try to realize, uh, they, they this is an experience that I learned when I first showed up, which is this idea of false motivation and God did I hate this when I first showed up where we'd be doing something just miserable, just terrible and the upperclassmen every single one of them would be coming around and they'd be like, God, I love this. And it would be like raining and we'd be outside and we'd be marching at 5 a.m. or what, you know, something stupid, just something terrible. Or we're out in the woods and just <laughs> doing things that are just miserable. And every single upperclassman, as you're a freshman, they're there. God, this is great. I love this is what they would say. And I'd never seen anything like that up to that point in my, in my life. And, and then the upperclassmen would come over to you and be like, Pish, do you like this? And, and your response would have to be, sir, I absolutely love this, sir. This is great. <laughs> right. And so they referred to it as false motivation. But what, what I came to really have a deep appreciation for was uh, false motivation was more like uh, cognitive conditioning in, in the, in the uh, frame of reference of only good things are going to happen to me. No matter what, I'm going to overcome these, these circumstances. If something bad's happening, I'm going to figure out a, a way to maneuver around it and, and make it more advantageous for myself. That's what was really kind of being wired into each person, even though it might have looked like some strange science experiment from a, from a mental conditioning kind of way. Um, and I would tell you that that's a, an insanely powerful force that a person can actually harness in their own lives at any point uh, when negative circumstances seem to arrive on, on their doorstep. 
is all right this clearly like this clearly sucks but i'm gonna absolutely crush whatever this is right now and i mean i hate to tell you if, if people got to know me personally they would find out real fast that that's pretty much what drives how i operate <laughs> on everything so those are some of the things that i've learned and, and kind of have pulled into financial markets like so we're looking at the the this current situation you see people online that are just talking about how horrible it is it's totally manipulated and i'm thinking yes i completely agree this is absolutely totally manipulated and i'm going to crush the living hell out of it right now what do i got to do in order to perform that action and let's not be naive about it let's really get into the nitty-gritty on how something like that would be possible so yeah and that's clearly what led you to bitcoin having that that mindset yeah yeah because you know we, we all know we've all listened to your original podcast and we, we know that you come from a value investing background and there are so many other stalwarts in like macro economic podcasts we won't name names but who are just so unwilling to do what you've done to to dive into this and look at you know what is this thing over here understand it and then do right by your subscription base, your the subscribers, the people that turn up to and listen to your show every like uh, once a week, twice a week, whatever you're doing, you're then helping educate them. Whereas a lot of the other guys, they just keep pushing back against it. And because they don't have that mindset that you were just describing, that they're not, it seems they're not willing to, to explore the unexplored or just to eat, like, like you said it, be careful what you tell yourself because you might just realize it. And when I, so I always, I've been asking myself this question a lot about Wall Street. Why in the hell can't they figure this out? It's almost like there's a curse on people from traditional finance that they're almost not allowed to understand this. Now, obviously there's some that, that are, but I'm talking in generalities. Most of them don't. And I, I guess the thing that I've come to the conclusion of is when I look at all these circumstances and they're all looking very dire, the optimist in me is saying there will be a solution that's going to be supplied and it's going to make the world a better place. So what is it? And, and then be relentless in your, in your search for what it is. And when you are relentless in your search for what it is, it leads you to this thing that is insanely complex that offers a solution. And if you're a person who doesn't look at the world from that really simple view of something will be supplied to make it a better place, and you just look at the world from a really negative lens, maybe that's why you can't see it. Maybe that's why you don't even take the first step to try to understand it because you're saying, oh, that's just a bunch of speculation. Those people are idiots with lasers in their eyes. Um, you know? Maybe that's why. And, and while we're on this topic, I want to just say something real fast. So like people were looking at this saying the laser eyes is, are terrible for the, for the branding and you're going to chase people away. Let me tell you, it is chasing nobody away because that's not what's driving the price. The thing in my humble opinion that's driving the price is the supply suffocation. It's automatically being supplied by the protocol and the miners, my thesis 
is, and, and maybe it's true, maybe it's not, is that the miners are setting the floor on that price chart that we look at in log terms that doesn't really make any sense at all, that something could, to, could look so perfectly over a 10-year horizon. So you know what? If there's people out there that are mean or young kids that just say, have fun staying poor to people when people are looking at that saying, that's not good for the brand, I say, it, none of it matters. None of it matters because this price is, is going to have another floor that's set. Now, it might go another four cycles or another two cycles or another one cycle or whatever because it's not uh, allowing more people to step in and you have this, this all-at-once uh, moment where the whole market realizes that this is where everything's going. Um, but in, at the end of the day, none of that matters. The math is just doing its thing. And it's just, uh, I've described it as like a monster that just keeps eating fiat currency. That's, that's what's happening. These, these processors are just clawing more and more fiat currency into the, into the system and the network effect and everything that's taking place. It's just like, good luck, good luck stopping it. Yeah, there's no stopping it. And I, yeah, to, to your point, I can't understand how more people don't see it, especially those guys that have been around and, and claim to be macroeconomic aware and just it just seems so disingenuous that they won't it's been around like 12 years now Preston right and if you're yeah. if you if you're in the markets and if you're studying the markets in, in air quotes then if you're not if you've not even taken the, the first step towards understanding what this is then there's um there's a certain amount of fiduciary duty that's just been completely swept under the rug it would seem it's the it it has reached a trillion in market cap faster than anything that has ever happened in history and just think about that being in finance and there's this thing that has a market cap of a trillion dollars and you won't even dig into anything about it or the, the why behind or the the engineering that's driving it or how the full nodes work versus mining rigs. That's the thing that amazes me. You talk to people, they don't even understand that there's a difference between a full node and, and a mining rig. It's like, how can you like, how can you not, how, how can you not have done that amount of research, not even that amount of research on this? And yet you have this really strong dogmatic opinion about it. This is mind blowing to me. Yeah. All right. Let's get back to um, loans. Um, we we were thrown off track with with Lauren entering the room and your your comedy stories from uh, from your West Point days. <laughs> how, how, what does this mean to the the general Twitter user, the Bitcoin pleb, the, the taco pleb? Please excuse me, Preston. I'm sorry. Um, I've got to use the correct pronunciation of the word. How does that affect <laughs> the, the plebe on the street? That might be thinking i've i've got a good stack of bitcoin here at some stage over the next 12 to 18 months they might have to start averaging out of it just to fund their their day-to-day -day fiat life but we're now going to be in a situation hopefully where they won't have to sell uh, how do you explain that to people what you what do you see coming on the horizon and what is already available that you've done in your research so I want to first preface this, and I don't know that I say this enough when I talk about borrowing and lending. I see that entire space as being very much the wild, wild west right now. 
um, whether one company or the other is uh, safe or not, that is totally up to people to do their own homework on because some of them you have a lot of uh, insights into how they're managing risk. Others you don't. They're, it's much more of a black box. And there's some that are fully over collateralized in all their lending. Some are doing a little bit of both. They're allowing institutions to not be over collateralized, but they're forcing retail to be over. So it, it is something that people, I would strongly encourage you if you're going to participate in these, that uh, you do your own homework. And to date, I haven't seen any that are FDIC insured. So that's also an important consideration if you've got that amount of money or less that you're playing around with. Um, and now, when I think about what it means moving forward, uh, what does this mean that we're dealing with something that is going to be over collateralized? Well, it means these capitalization rates that you've seen out of this old legacy system are not going to be anything near what you're going to see in the future. Uh, and what, and what do you mean by over collateralized? And I'll just, you know, real general, if you want to borrow $10,000, uh, of fiat, you're going to have to lock up $20,000 worth of Bitcoin or, or even fiat or anything. You're going to have to have escrow, double the escrow of what you're borrowing. So in terms of people could understand in today's legacy system, if your house was paid off and you wanted to go out and take a home equity loan of $50,000 against your house and your house is worth $100,000, that's the, that's the equivalency of what we're talking about of all loans in this new system. Now, as a person hears that and they say, well, that's not going to scale. Like that's not going to work. Uh, yes, it will. <laughs> and you might not like it, <laughs> but just because you don't like it doesn't mean you're not going to get it. And that's, you know, that's something I learned definitely back in my days at the Academy was you might not like it, but you're going to have to settle for it. Um, and that's, that's where this is all moving. And um, now, what are some of the benefits of this changeover that's going to happen at some point in time? Well, I think the biggest benefit to your typical person that has a lot of leverage on their house, let's say that you have a house, uh, and I'm going to use really round, simple numbers. Let's say your house has a value of $100,000, and you've only paid down 20% of it, and the other 80%, you still got to pay off. Well, your contract on that house is denominated in fiat dollars. And if we go through this big event where there's this changeover to this new financial system, uh, the, the appetite for dollars is going to be near nothing. And those cur the currency is going to be, uh, I, I make the argument that it's already been printed and it's already there. It's just sitting in the bond market at 0%. It's been bid into the bond market in produced yields of 0%. So when the, when that starts to unravel, the printing has already taken place. And so what that's going to mean for people that have these houses that have a lot of leverage is you're going to be able to make your, your payments on the house because it's a fixed rate very easily because the contract specifies that the repayment is at a fixed rate in fiat dollars. And the value of your Bitcoin is just going up in this, in this rocket-like manner and so for your ability to make payment on that house, you can just basically pay it off. You're, you're, you're getting the remainder of that debt that you owe on the house 
I'm going to say for free, but the, it's not necessarily quote unquote free, but you're getting it at a really, really cheap price relative to the appreciation of your Bitcoin. So people are going to have a windfall of equity in this event, or at least the ones that are heavily leveraged on their house that haven't made a lot of payments on their house. They're going to have a windfall of equity. And I suspect that if a person is out of a job, because I think that this event is going to produce a lot of unemployment, very high numbers, higher numbers than we've probably seen in our entire lifetimes. Um, so there's going to be a lot of dislocation, but there, there people are going to have this equity that they can draw from in an over collateralized way. So they could put, they could borrow against their house because they own their house at this point. So these are some of the crazy things. Now, whether any of this is true, I don't know. But when I'm, when I'm looking at all of these things playing out, this is what they mean. Um, and I'm just trying to think, okay, so that leads to this. Okay, people are going to get their houses for, quote, unquote, free. Then they're going to be out of a job. And then they're going to have to come up with some money. So they're going to over collateralize on their house. They're going to borrow against that. The ones that are still working won't have these problems. And I think in, in general, and maybe this is the, the optimist in me coming out, in general, it might actually be an event that releases uh, the pressures that everyone in the world has right now. Um, most people are working their tails off, but they really don't feel like they have anything to show for it. So maybe this is an event that actually demonstrates a little bit of relief from that. And then the trend is actually more positive for your, for the general population of the world. Now think about who would be, who would, who would be the person that would uh, not be the beneficiary of this? Well, all the people that own the debt, um, which is your wealthy fixed income investors. Um, so if fixed income is for one person to get something for quote unquote free, the other person has to be completely impaired in the position. And so um, think about all that impairment from the people that are that are owning a lot of that debt or owning the financial institution that that has issued that. Those are the ones that are going to be uh, really, and I say hurt or uh, becoming impaired. But if you're worth a billion dollars or you're worth a hundred million dollars and you become impaired by half, you're still worth fifty million dollars. So, um, you know, I don't necessarily see it as as that bad of a thing. Um, but yeah, that's how I kind of see some of this playing out and the implications of, of this borrowing lending and these higher rates becoming the, the new risk-free rates. So it makes it even more imperative to, to own Bitcoin going into this, this new paradigm. No doubt. Well, think about it. I think anybody, anybody who would hear that the risk-free rate is not government-issued would kind of blow their mind. But if you're talking about something that's over-collateralized that can trade in a 24-7 market, why wouldn't it be risk-free? Because your collateral is sitting there. It's more than you deposited. And you can liquidate it in a per-second basis. Like the, the, the concerns out of the legacy system is it's fractional reserved. And the clearing of whatever under collateral is sitting there is slow as a snail. And it might not even be liquid. Like what we're talking about is liquid collateral. Um, so at, at double the deposit. So where's the risk? The risk is just in the management of the private keys. And I think that as 
as technology and more um, standards get kind of put in place as to how that's being managed, I really see a lot of that risk melting away five, 10 years from now, as opposed to where we're at right now, where I'm kind of describing it more as the wild, wild west. But um, yeah, I see risk-free rates actually moving towards a peer-to-peer lending system, <laughs> as crazy as that sounds. It just cha- it changes everything, doesn't it? This is like- Changes everything. It, I mean- It, it turns it inside Bitcoin out. Fit, it, it's crazy. And this is why it's so damn hard to try and pull all these pieces of the puzzle together and, and try and figure out in your mind how the next five to 10 years is going to look. And one, one journey I've been trying to take myself on, and you, you just touched on this, and I, I'd missed the square news about becoming an FDIC uh, assured bank. Um, I was wondering, when do, when do corporations you know, beat the banks to this jump? Uh, because we've had in the past companies like uh, GE, their financial arm, I think in the, in the heyday of GE, wasn't it something like one third of their, their yearly um, revenue was, was through their financial division. Um, Ford, uh, Toyota, all of these huge companies had financial divisions. Well, I think what they're going to do is they're going to outsource the tech to the Gemini's, the Coinbase's, the BlockFi's, the, 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 the first movers that understood where all this was going very early on and have the technical expertise already in place and already supplied and have demonstrated that they're good custodians of that, they're going to be the, the, the go-to entities that all these big banks are going to just outsource all of this to. And then what the, what the big banks are going to do is they're just going to use their clientele that, that, that already exists. The network effect that they already have of all these clients, uh, all these customers, they're then just going to flow all of their deposits and all of their interests to these other entities, um, to these Gemini's and, and, and exchanges like Kraken and whatnot uh, for the technical management. And what's going to happen in the long run is unless they start standing up their own uh, technical chops in-house, they're, the fee that they're going to have to charge as the pass-through is going to cause the depletion of their customer base over time. So they're going to have to either evolve technically to start taking physical custody of these, of these digital assets, or they're just going to eventually, uh, you know, uh, die a slow death in my, in my opinion. Um, so that'll be the bridge Their 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 potential energy that they've already got is, is all their customers. And so they'll leverage that, but they're going to have to make a, a huge pivot. And they're going to have to do it very soon if they're going to want to remain competitive. Because I think the switching cost, I mean, to open a Square or a Cash App account and get on the Square platform is so easy and so fast that if people in the legacy system even try it, uh, (laughs) if one of them tries it and they realize, hey, that was a 10-minute process, let me tell my friends. Uh, they're going to have some real trouble on their hands because a lot of these legacy banks, man, I mean, they are, I mean, lethargic to to put it nicely. Yeah. I mean, the end is nigh. And I, I was wondering, what are your thoughts on, you know, sailors got to be like uh, in the top seat for this, turning MicroStrategy into 
um, offering finance to to people um, that could um, borrow against their Bitcoin and parking it with MicroStrategy. Yeah, I could see him going down that path. I mean, I when I just think of of the coins he has, um, I just can't imagine the the free cash flows that those coins alone are going to kick off. And what a misnomer, because for all these years, people have been saying, well, Bitcoin doesn't kick off any free cash flows. So like, how can you value it? Well, unfortunately for them, that narrative does not fly anymore. These things do kick off free cash flows and a, a meaningful amount of free cash flows. I mean, you can get 6% or 10% if you're doing peer to peer in Bitcoin lending um, somewhere in that range. Right. Uh, so when you think of Michael Saylor, that alone is going to be massive. Here's the other thing that I think is that is completely discounted today that people aren't thinking about is when we think about uh, Bitcoin becoming uh, a currency in the future. Right now, it's only talked about as a digital asset store of value, but I don't see it that way at all. I think in the future, it's definitely going to be a currency. And I think that um, what's going to take it there is the Lightning Network. And so when you when you pull back and really start examining how does the Lightning Network work? Well, you have to open channels. If you've got a full node, you can open a channel. And how do you open a channel? Well, you've got to have Bitcoin to open channels. Well, who's going to make the, the biggest yields off of these IOUs that are running on the, on the Lightning Network? Well, the people that open the most channels because their node's going to be used the most, right? So if you're a Michael Saylor and you're sitting on that many Bitcoin, could you imagine how many nodes he could, or how many channels he could open? Um, way he could open more channels than, than money he's got. So people like him and others that have a lot of Bitcoin uh, have the potential, and I don't know that it's necessarily going to move this way or whether the fees are going to pay yields that would uh, be more beneficial to have them uh, in a manner that you're plugging them into the Lightning Network and opening channels, if that's going to pay you a higher yield or in the borrowing lending market. I just don't know. But I do think that there's going to be money to be made by uh, taking your Bitcoins, opening channels on Lightning, and then collecting yields for the IOUs as they pass through the node. Um, maybe that's going to be your risk-free rate in the future. I don't know. It's going to be one of the two. It's either going to be there on the Lightning Network or it's going to be in peer-to-peer -peer lending. In, in my personal opinion, 10 years from now, that's going to be your risk-free rate. So um, the, the possibilities for companies that are putting this on their balance sheet um, are kind of endless as long as they're actually buying real Bitcoin and not buying ETFs because you're not going to be able to do any of that stuff with ETFs. Yeah, exactly. And what do you feel? Have, have you gone down the, the thought process of being able to loan Bitcoin to companies for assets? And we, we'll use like a, a very simple example, Tesla. Say you want a brand new Tesla Model 3, top notch, top spec, that's maybe $40,000, $50,000. Keep it simple, $50,000. That's the price of a Bitcoin. Do you see schemes coming where maybe I park a quarter of a Bitcoin or half a Bitcoin with Tesla? And over time, the, there'll be contracts, some kind of uh, loan contract written in that I get part of the Bitcoin back when it triggers a price um, and I get to keep the car and get part of the Bitcoin back. Have you gone down that kind of thought process yet? Yeah, I think that uh, the things like that will be attempted. Now, for, for 
because you're what you're really getting into, into is the rehypothecation of it and how would something like that work because if Tesla is now holding the Bitcoin, the only reason that they would do that deal is so that they can then lend it out and, and collect some type of interest while they're holding it. And so um, for the person that would be making that deposit, um, that, I, got, I got to walk the dog on this. So if, if I want to go buy a Tesla and I'm going to deposit a Bitcoin, okay, for my some, some, some amount as my payment for them to collect interest, I don't necessarily know that the depositor is going to have an interest in doing that fully knowing that it's going to be rehypothecated. I think that the way that the, that the person who would be sitting on enough Bitcoin to do that, they would step into a lending uh, market that they know it's not being rehypothecated, collect the interest and just make the, the payments to a Tesla in that manner. That's how I would do it personally. Now, whether you get other people that are more willing to allow it to be rehypothecated, maybe, but, I don't necessarily think that would maybe be the case. Um, I would have to explore that more, but what, what you're describing involves rehypothecation. And, and, and in my opinion, I don't know that it's necessarily all that congruent with the new system we're moving into. Or people, Which, won't, have, I think, people won't have an incentive to act in that manner. It's probably the better way to describe it. Hmm. And you had the guy on that um, that wrote uh, Layered Money. I, the, the name is um, uh, Nick me at the moment. Batia, yeah. Nick, right? Okay, yeah. Re re really, really interesting. And when you <laughs> and when you think of Bitcoin, like it's what's really just so mind blowing. Again, is yeah, we we've had layered money all of our complete lives, and it's all been layered down from and you know the top layer being gold. And then we've got into this, all of these um, crazy fractional reserve banking and derivatives and, and whatever else. And along comes Bitcoin. And instead of fitting into one of those layers, it's just the alpha sitting right at the top, right above gold, and now pulling all of the puppet strings. And still people aren't realizing that. I mean, it's- and We're still so early. This might be a, a poor analogy, but it's like the iPhone of money. Think about everything that the iPhone obliterated. I mean, now you can stand out there selling cotton candy and swipe somebody's credit card with your, with your iPhone. You can hold your iPhone up and you can have a video conversation with somebody on the other side of the planet anywhere. Like you're not even wired. I mean, when you really think about where we were at as kids and what technology existed to what we have literally in our pocket that can do all of this stuff, it's totally mind blowing. I can take a picture of a check and it's immediately deposited into my bank account. Like all these things, it's just totally nuts. And so when I think about what Bitcoin is to the financial system, I really see it kind of in a similar light of it's bringing so much capacity and capability that it's just, it's taken a machete straight to all these layers of money in, in organizational structure that was built on top of, on top of gold or, you know, back when there was a gold standard. Um, all these layers, it's just slashing all of them. And it's just saying, Hey, there's, there's a, just, there's a new way of doing business now. And, uh, boy, what a, what an, an efficiency gain compared to the old system. If you really cracked it open and could fully understand how nuanced all the different layers are. And then you look at this thing that's just bypassing all of it and just going point to point with people through encryption, it's mind blowing. All right. Well, I've asked you this question twice before. 
And you've been pretty consistent with the answer. If you had one orange pill left to give, who would you give it to and why? I don't. So I would imagine I, I've said, who have I said? Ray Dalio, I'm sure. Yep. <laughs> who yes. else would I say? <laughs> I think I think Ray on both counts. Uh, Ray on both. I think. I think Ray's yeah. there. So I, I don't think that uh, we necessarily need the orange pill him anymore. <laughs> um, who else would you? I mean, uh, I think Janet Yellen would be a nice one to, because I think you already got it with with uh, Ginsler at the SEC. So it'd be nice at the Fed if if uh, if she really started coming, and maybe she already understands it. You know, this is the thing that I tell a lot of people when they when they tell me, "Well, did you hear Janet Yellen? She's really against it." Well, the only thing Janet Yellen really talks about is. Bitcoin use being used for in nefarious ways and that that needs to be stopped. So, okay, got it. 50 basis points of people and use it for nefarious ways. So sure, we can focus on that if, if that's what you're really concerned about. But the thing I like to kind of spin that, imagine if Janet Yellen came out tomorrow and made a, an announcement. I think there's a lot of promise in Bitcoin. That, that's the announcement. What would that do to financial markets? Because she's in the business of stability, right? So if she's in the business of stability of financial markets, she's never, ever in a million years going to come out and say something favorable about Bitcoin. Because the second that she does, it, it's going to be chaotic. So, um, you know, I, I guess I'll say her just to be a little bit different. I, there's some other people that I could probably say too, but at the end of the day, it goes back to what I was saying earlier in, in the conversation. It really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if, if somebody with a lot of influence gets this or promotes this because the math is just taking care of everything on its own. The, the mathematics that are governing this protocol are doing everything it needs to do on its own. It's producing the incentive structure that's naturally going to pull, even if it's somebody with a hundred bucks into the protocol, that incentive structure is going to pull that person with a hundred bucks into the protocol. And whether somebody with a hundred billion dollars gets pulled in or not, it just really doesn't matter because eventually they will. So. So what, what I think you're trying to say in, in the, the best Preston language ever is, and I'll translate for the listeners because I'm not sure you've, I don't think I've ever heard you use, use the word before, but Bitcoin gives zero fucks is what Preston is trying to say. <laughs> it's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> Do you want to say it? <laughs> you took, you took the words right out of my mouth. My mom would be, my, my mom would listen to that and she'd be so, <laughs> so upset with me. Preston, I'm so disappointed in you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Well, as always, it's been a great interview. Great to hang out with you. Um, before we sign off, is there anything uh, you want to leave the listeners with? Where, where can they come and find you? And um, what's the best way to interact with you? So I'm active on Twitter, even though people say I'm not kind. I am on Twitter. And I like to think I'm a kind person. Um, <laughs> I'm obviously talking about Sven. Uh, so Twitter, I also have a podcast. Uh, it it goes by We Study Billionaires. My show, uh, there's there's different shows that come out throughout the week on that uh, on that We Study Billionaires channel. Uh, my show comes out on Wednesdays where I'm only talking about Bitcoin now. And uh, yeah, really appreciate the opportunity to come on and chat with you, Daniel. 
Anytime, man. I look forward to the next one. And uh, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens in the next uh, couple of quarters, because I think you and I are both of the same opinion. I know we're both of the same opinion. More and more corporations are going to announce that they are going to be uh, allocating Bitcoin to their to their balance sheet. And this is going to be a, a crazy ride. Or I hear uh, Oracle might be the next candidate on deck. And I think they're their fourth quarter announcement uh, closeout is coming out. I think next week, so we'll see if if that if that rumor is true, which would be a huge one if true, uh, with Larry Ellison who sits on Elon Musk's board over at Tesla. So we'll see. They're coming, man. They are coming. Uh, there's no stopping it. There's no stopping it. All right. Thanks, Preston. Take care, man. Thank you. Hey guys, hope you enjoyed that one. Thanks again, Preston, for coming on the show. And uh, sorry guys, a quick apology for the quality of my side of the audio. For some reason, Zoom decided to default to my laptop mic rather than my actual mic. Um, It didn't make too much of a difference, I guess, but uh, just a little slight on my side. So apologies for uh, any audio lack of quality of the audio there. Lots to think about there from Preston, um, but uh, I'd like to focus very much on his story of kicking open the door of two of the uh, guys that... <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that one. No, of course, the, the the deep thinking around where this market is heading, and it's always so nice to be able to unpack these ideas with Preston and just see where his mind is headed, because he did call companies put in bitcoin onto the balance sheet and he does have an insight into these things because he's willing to go down these rabbit holes and try and piece these uh, pieces of the puzzle together as you've all heard before in the past so definitely check out preston if you've not heard of him before go and follow him listen to his own bitcoin podcast which is excellent and of course his other podcast which is much more on the macro and equity markets and fixed income markets which of course rounds out your knowledge which is perfect that's what we're here for so before we sign off don't forget guys coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten or relay r-e-l-a-i dot c-h forward slash bitten go start stacking the sats let's go thanks for listening